Welcome to this episode of Nuance, a podcast that encourages Christ followers to live faithfully at work, especially in regard to the hot topics of the public square. This season, we're exploring the ever-growing issue of gender identity. As Christ followers, we have to do better and be better, while confidently knowing that the gospel speaks to our most difficult conversations. My name is Case Thorpe. On behalf of my co-host, Crossland Stewart, and myself, welcome to Nuance. I want to welcome today's guest, James Eglinton. James, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Case. It's great to be with you. Coming to us from Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, let me remind our listeners, please be sure to like us and to subscribe. Help us to get the word out. So Dr. James Eglinton holds the prestigious position of the Meldrum Senior Lecturer in Reformed Theology at New College, University of Edinburgh. He's the world's leading authority on Herman Bavinck, who was a Calvinist theologian and churchman at the turn of the 20th century. James is a prolific writer. His latest book, Bavinck, A Critical Biography, was published in 2020 and has received numerous accolades. James actually co-hosts one of my favorite podcasts called Grace in Common, where he and uh, several others uh, talk about common grace and other theological topics. So we're going to be sharing post links to his books and that podcast in our show notes. Now, James, you know, uh, in a couple of months, I'm going to be coming to spend a month with you. Uh, in Edinburgh. Now, not with you per se, but with your churchman at Esk Valley Church. And um, I committed to take you to enjoy a scotch or two. So tell me, when, we, when I come in, in June, what is the, where are you going to take us where we can have a great time? Yeah, well, so there's no shortage of options. Um, the whiskey room at the Balmoral Hotel is very nice. It really depends oh, on what we can room. stretch the budget to. Or there's the Johnny Walker experience in Edinburgh. It's oh, it's the, oh. a, a huge whiskey experience. But um, okay. I'm not sure if this counts as product placement. I haven't been. I didn't know this question was coming. So well, these places haven't asked ask... me to say any of this. But I could ask them to sponsor the program, right? Right. Yeah. I know a friend <laughs> who has a podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they always open with a fake sponsorship from a big corporation in hopes that that corporation will actually fund them. But the Whiskey Room at the Balmoral Hotel. Now, that sounds like my kind of place. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, Crossland's paying, so it'll be good. Well, thank you for being here. And um, Crossland, uh, welcome. Uh, she is my great co-host in all these things, so I'll hand it over to you. It's great to be here today, and James, thank you again for joining us. Unfortunately, I will not be on that trip to Scotland, but oh, come on, I come do with hope. <laughs> I do hope one day uh, to get to your mother country. Um, that's on my bucket list for sure. But I wondered, as we start, I would love for our audience to know a little bit more about you. Um, and in particular, how did you become interested in Herman Bavinck? Sure. Well, I am from Scotland originally. I grew up here and um, I grew up in the, in the Highlands, up in the north of Scotland. I grew up in a Christian family and um, I studied law as an undergraduate in Aberdeen. And one of the nice things about the Scottish university system is that you have your major, but you also have quite a lot of flexibility to take courses outside of your major and um, just develop your interests a bit when you're an undergraduate. So I had a year of theology as part of my law degree, which was a really great combination. And um, so I finished my law degree and then went to seminary after that um, in Edinburgh, a seminary that at that point was called the Free Church College. Uh, so my denomination is the Free Church of Scotland. It's a, it's a small Presbyterian denomination. And it's now called Edinburgh Theological Seminary, but I was there back in the day uh, under the old branding. And when I was a seminary student, um, Herman Bavinck's dogmatics were just coming out in English for the first time. So I, I was just new to um, that kind of level of theological study anyway. And these were really new, exciting works that were coming out. And um, I, I got the Bavinck bug back then. Um, so that was in the, well, the, the early 2000s, I think. So I went to seminary in 2004 and finished in 2007. So um, volumes one and two of his most important work, the Reformed Dogmatics, had come out in that period. And then I moved into a PhD after that at the University of Edinburgh, still working on Bavinck. 
and um, the next two volumes of his dogmatics came out in that period. So um, I don't think I had any real sense of what I was stepping into in that um, I just thought this was great and fascinating theology. I didn't really realize that I was stepping onto a wave that I could ride for quite some time. Um, but I've, I've, I'm still riding that wave and really happily and enjoying it very much. So I did my PhD on Bavink. And, um, I, and so I finished that in 2010. And I'm still working, working away on his stuff. He left behind so much untranslated material, also so much unpublished theology as well in manuscripts, um, in manuscript form. And I... I've been reading him now for quite some time, and I still feel like I'm scratching the surface. So he's just such a rich Christian thinker. Um, I think what drew me to him in the first place was that he's so deeply committed to um, to Scripture as God's word, and a really mm. insightful reader of the Bible. But he also had a particular historical sensibility. So he didn't think he wasn't a golden age thinker who, who thought that there was some bygone era where it was the perfect time to. Uh, to be a Christian or for Christianity to um, to flourish in, in some kind of cultural form, as though you always have to try and live as though it was 200 years ago. Uh, instead, he was really committed to the the uh, the call of the gospel and the authority of, of the gospel in every cultural period and in every historical period, including his own age. So that meant that he was so engaged with every major social question, every intellectual issue, uh, in his own day and in his own time. And 100 years ago in the Netherlands, that's not that different from Scotland 100 years later. So a lot of the big questions I had about how Christianity would relate to big things that I was facing, having grown up in Scotland um, in the early 21st century or the late 20th century, were things that Bavin had a lot to say on. And I was surprised by how much. And um, so I was drawn to him because of that kind of combination in the first place. And there's just so much there to work with that here I am in 2022, and I still spend a lot of my time reading Bavink and trying to understand him. Mm. Well, that's great. And one of the reasons I love that we're going to spend some more time talking about Bavink today, because he did believe that the gospel was culturally relevant. Yeah, the Bavink bite. I like that. I like that. Um, he's still biting at you, I guess. So our listeners may not be so familiar with Bob Inc. and the bite that he uh, can get onto folks and get them excited about things. You've drawn out how his importance for the church was, he, he believed in the power of the church because he saw the way in which it formed people and shaped people. And this is one of the things I struggle with as a pastor right now because of pandemic. So many people stay home now and watch church online and they don't fully appreciate the forming and the shaping just merely by being together uh, that is even more than just through the internet. But um, thinking about Bob Inc.'s day, uh, Scotland today, what you may know of the American situation and the, the gender identity questions that are being asked, uh, the new anthropology, I would argue, is kind of being developed. How do you think the church can um, play a role in shaping this conversation? Well, that's a big question. And that's also probably the single most contentious issue in Scottish culture at the moment, and uh, mm. probably in UK culture as well. Uh, and you see that all across the Western world. So it's the same in the, the United States. It's the same in continental Europe in many places. Uh, I can't say anything very directly into the American context because I'm not from the United States and I've never lived there. But I can certainly say something about the church and its role in my own context in Scotland and against the backdrop of the UK. Uh, which is quite, in some ways, quite different to the, the, the questions that maybe Christians have to wrestle with culturally and socially in the United States. In Scotland, um, the percentage of the population that actually attends church regularly is really small, um, far, far smaller than, you know, it's unimaginably small compared to North America, um, certainly to the United States anyway. And um, even the percentage of those who identify as Christians, uh, even if they're not very regular in participating in the, in the life of the church. That's dwindling all the time, and we expect that um, yeah. now, well, in, in the near future, we expect that to be confirmed to have dropped to below 50%. Um, so the, the number of Christians is really dwindling, and the number of those who are actively engaged in church in any sense is, is quite small. Um, and because of that, Christians don't form um, a very identifiable, powerful political block um, or major cultural presence that political powers, for example, would try and court. 
So the views of Christians on a debate like gender identification or self-identification are not, um, they don't play a lead role on either side of that debate within UK culture or, or within Scottish culture more locally. So actually, in, in our context, this is very much an intra-secular debate. It's a debate amongst mm. different kinds of non-churchgoers. Um, and that gives the church a very particular kind of calling and kind of challenge in helping Christians navigate that. So in the UK, um, if you have someone who's really critical of something like gender self-identification and who thinks that your biological sex and your gender identity are extremely closely linked, um, two sides of the same coin, and someone else on the other side of the debate who thinks that your biology really has no bearing at all on your gender and your gender is a, an utterly detached thing that has, um, you know, it might find some kind of aesthetic expression in how you clothe your body, for example, um, but your body doesn't um, really have any um, like causative bearing on what gender you might say that you are. Those two people in, in Scottish culture um, are very often, on the one hand, you might have someone who is critical of gender self-identification. That person may well identify as an atheist, may well identify as a radical feminist, for example. And then the person on the other side um, who identifies uh, or, or who is on the, the pro-gender self-identification side of the debate will identify as or, or will have a secular identity that's just composed differently. So in UK culture, it isn't really framed as you know, a Christian mm. view versus something else. Um, rather, as I said, it's intrasecular. And I think that the church in, in UK culture, and, and, and more locally again in Scottish culture, the church has a very distinct kind of challenge in helping Christians um, think in distinctively Christian terms in navigating a debate that's dominated by two different secular camps, and also in helping Christians to think uh, for themselves as well, in, as individuals as they enter that kind of a debate. Because what you have is very much two package deals, and both sides of the debate in British culture expect that you sign up to everything. And um, that's just very difficult for Christians to enter into if those Christians think that Christianity is a faith that has to exist on its own terms, that Christianity isn't a tail that's wagged by some other dog. Instead, Christianity is, is the whole beast itself. Uh, that it's a faith for all of life and that it, that it, that it has to live um, idiosyncratically on its own terms. So I think that there, there are ways that, that churches can do that and that really need to do that in British culture. Um, it's really important for churches to give Christians really good and useful and workable categories to understand the culture that they live in, the kind of cultural backdrop of the church. Uh, for example, to give people categories like secular traditional and secular progressive, um, those are really underdeveloped categories, but I think that they're very necessary for Christians in a British context, in a very immediate sense. We really need to learn how to think in those kinds of categories um, to realize that, these, that it's possible to arrange a, a very secularized take on life um, in ways that are more traditional, but also in ways that are more progressive. But mm -hmm. if you're trying to negotiate with what people offer as a package deal, then you really need to understand who you're negotiating with and that it's going to be a secular, that very often in British culture, it will be led by a secular traditionalist or a secular progressivist. Um, I think that there are other ways as well that churches can help people understand the times and live well within them. Also, I think particularly in British culture as well, in helping Christians think through even what the word secular means um, in Western culture more broadly, and then helping Christians understand the particular culture that they live in within a, a Western, um, you know, bigger West kind of package of Western cultures and nations. So one of the most important books that I've found in learning how to understand this is by Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian Catholic philosopher. Mm -hmm. He wrote this massive book called The Secular Age. Um, and... I think one of the most helpful things in that book is the way that he sets out in very broad terms how people across Western cultures, in the United States, Canada, you know, the UK, Western Europe, um, they tend to use the word secular in one of two senses. Um, the first sense is people who use the word secular to say that we have outgrown religion. Um, religion is childish, it belongs in the past, and there's really nothing that's respectable about holding on to it. So secular is 
post-religious, and therefore also post-Christian. And people who use the term in that sense tend to be quite intolerant of those who want to um, you know, live and think um, in religious ways that they're very explicit about. Um, but the second sense of the word secular that Charles Taylor uses is to say that secular means, in effect, a pluralistic society. So you might be Christian, your next door neighbor might be an atheist, and the next family along might be Muslim, the next family along might be Jewish. And a secular society is one in which you can all participate together in the life of the nation. And um, it means that, you know, that, that you're not going to be burned at the stake for not being Trinitarian, or you're not going to be deported because sure. you don't hold religious view X, Y, or Z. Uh, or I should say Z for an American audience. Um, so that's <laughs> the second sense. And actually, so in, in trying to help Christians in the UK understand the kind of culture that they live in, and then how this helps them live out their faith, even amongst these you know, big polarizing issues amongst non-Christians, yeah. um, helping Christians understand that actually, legally, uh, the reality on the ground in the UK is option number two for secularism. It's not the yeah. case that British culture has you know, outlawed religion or, or gives you, you know, no freedom of religious expression or assembly that would mean that you can gather with other believers and so on. In fact, British culture yeah. is set up to be option number two. And in option number two, we have an Equalities Act where religious belief is a protected category. You have you know, basic human rights to family life, to privacy, to freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. um, all of these freedoms that actually are expressed together in um, freedom of religion. So in British culture, the fact that we actually have, on the whole, a pretty strong sense of uh, set of legal rights around religious freedom, that means that Christians have a lot of freedom to think on their own terms as they enter these debates. And you don't have to buy into a package deal. But a lot of Christians don't know their, their rights, actually. They don't know the law of the land. And it's really important for churches to help them there. Well, I would say that fault line that you so eloquently describe is where our political discussion has been in the last few years and I think is still working itself out between is religion a, a threat or is it one of many options and choices? And uh, I see our desire to promote a principal pluralism, which we spoke on a good bit last season, is best for religious freedom and such. Certainly complicated, for sure. So just to help our listeners, this distinction between the two definitions of secular that Taylor lays out so clearly, I'm thinking about the lay person on the pew. And if they're listening and going, okay, I can articulate the two definitions, but how does that impact how I think? If I think Case is right that, um, I mean, we would be where the UK is. We have religious rights, protections, and that kind of thing. But what is the real implication for that? Well, I think the real implication, as I said, is that... Um, so I've already used the language of package deal politics. Right. Okay? I've used that a few times. And that is... It's language that I've taken from another uh, British scholar, a guy called James Mumford, who's written some really interesting work on how we live in the era of the package deal um, politics, package deal politics. And I think that part of the package deal is actually, so it's profoundly post-Christian. Okay? And I'll try and explain what I mean by that. So if you go back, if you go back through the, the centuries um, to the, the pagan Roman world, okay? Um, so we're talking before Christianity, the Christian revolution turns the world upside down, and then before you know, Augustine of Hippo comes along and teaches us how to think right. about ourselves and others in terms of sin, grace, forgiveness. Okay. Before that, um, one of the, the dominant religious philosophies, one of the dominant worldviews was called um, Manichaeism. And the Manichaeans were this um, religious group who had a very strong um, kind of black and white, good and evil contrast in how they viewed the world and how they wanted to live. And you really have to keep yourself pure from everything that might otherwise stain you. And um, 
that has if you, so if you think like that about the world if you don't think in categories of of sin grace forgiveness um, and all those christian categories um you, you don't have a very strong basis by which to um to get alongside and to engage with to have any kind of proximity to people who think very differently to you because you don't want to be stained by them because you, you can't really deal with that that damage you can't take that on and so that's a very Manichaean way of thinking, like very stark. You know, you're in my camp or you're in the other camp. You're, in, you're, the, you're with the good guys or with the bad guys. And there's no in between. Yeah. And I only associate with my own group and my own tribe. And, right. Um, Sounds very familiar to a lot of political yes. voices in, today in America. Indeed. Okay. But, but that was something that was overturned um, in, actually through, through Augustine because he was a Manichaean for a while, a Manichaean inquirer, mm -hmm. and then became a Christian and then his... Confessions, which have been such a world-changing book, really undermines that and shows in the story of his life that, that Manichaean is just not a very livable philosophy unless you want to you know, live a very disjointed existence where you, you're so stunted in your capacity to, uh, to have friendships, for example, or you're so afraid of anything that would stain you because you don't really believe in forgiveness either, either for yourself or for others. So you just try and avoid the stain in the first place. Um, and, and that became a very alien way of thinking about life in Western culture for a very, very long time, for centuries, mm. uh, because we started to swim in Christian waters. But I think that that kind of way of thinking has made a resurgence in recent decades, yes. in part because we're, we're getting further and further culturally across the West from our Christian uh, moorings. And that means that we've lost very instinctive ways to think about grace and forgiveness mm. and sin in ourselves and also in other people and, and, and how we relate to other human beings. And that means that we've got much more of a Manichaean intuition now about, you know, who is in my camp and who's in the other camp? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And we're very reactive and how um, reactionary and how we position ourselves. And um, that's, and again, so I think that the, the kind of package deal issue that I was talking about is actually the product of our alienation and our estrangement from, again, just very wow. deep Christian intuitions. So, so good. helping people understand that, or just to see that the package deal is out there and that, that Christians don't need to buy into that, that we actually have a very different way of thinking about humans, about, other, about ourselves, mm. about other people and how we can relate to them and the, the idea that you know, you're not contaminated by shaking hands with somebody that you are very different on right. lots of ways of thinking and instead yeah. that you can live much more constructively and fruitfully and with the integrity of your own faith as well uh, within all of that. So helping people see what the package deal is for what it is, is really important. Okay. That has huge practical implications. Um, James, if I may just pause you right there, because I think that may be when it comes to the uh, gender debate and conversation that's occurring, why so many Christians may have been so shocked with the reaction of some, there hasn't been the gray area to be able to work these things out and understand them and compare them over against Christian scripture and theology, et cetera. It's all of a sudden now you are corrupt, you are out. And uh, that has perhaps, I think, only frustrated and alienated more people or led to the hostility in some of these conversations. Um, Which is huge in the US. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really part of the um the attitude and the hostility is so much what's driving um even this podcast of nuance uh, right. not right. only in the gender areas but in kind of so many areas of public theology so and the explanation you've given has been great i love yeah, they this get defensive that i'm not corrupt wait wait well, let's not even talk about the issue <laughs> like give me a chance to process and understand but yet you've all of a sudden now cast me out as this bad guy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of how to process these things, and you did so in a very public way in writing an editorial to one of the leading newspapers in Scotland, uh, there had been guidelines put out, I guess, by the government's educational department and the National Health Service recommending that elementary age children as young as five be tasked with deciding whether they are a boy or a girl or neither. And you responded with uh, an objection and a, a different way to handle this. So can you tell us how that came about, what your response was and what came of it? Yeah, so I, I write op-eds 
pretty regularly anyway for a few newspapers over here, uh, most regularly The Times and uh, also The Herald. So, um, so I see an, an important part of my work as an academic theologian, being that I also address public issues. And I think mm -hmm. that Scottish culture really needs Christian public intellectuals uh, who think in, a, in an openly Christian way on big public issues like this. So I write about all kinds of different things um, that come up in public life. And um, so this was one of them. I think, I mean, what motivated my response there was, uh, so this was government guidance to schools that they should encourage uh, really young children, you know, from the age of four to take on the responsibility of, of deep self-knowledge that at the age of four, you might even have a sense of who you are that's very different to what your parents tell you about who you are or your community. And I suppose what, what motivated my response to that initially was that in my academic work, I've spent a lot of time over quite a few years reading the autobiographies of Western Europeans going back over hundreds of years. Um, I think autobiography is a completely fascinating genre anyway. I myself am a biographer. And I'm really interested in the autobiography of childhood over these centuries because people imagine their childhood in quite different ways across the history of modern Europe, you know, from, uh, from the early modern period onwards. So if you go back to read some, some of the earliest autobiographies in modern Europe, um, usually it'll begin with a big section on who they're most significant ancestors were and then you know i was born and then there's actually very little about childhood and then the story picks up with the fully formed adult and all the things that he or she goes on to accomplish and it's not that childhood is is insignificant um it's just that it's 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 so unburdened that it's not even a part of the story okay and you're so connected in your adult identity to your your parents and grandparents and so on but then later, Europeans do start to write a lot about their childhoods, and they start to grasp how important childhood experience is in forming who you go on to become as an adult. So then autobiographies do cover this quite a lot more. So there's, there's a lot of change in how Europeans understood the nature of childhood. But what I thought was being proposed by the government was such a radical break from everything that I'd ever come across was that... Um, you don't find people in the, in the history of Western Europe who place an impossibly heavy existential burden on four-year-old children to say, actually, maybe everything you've been told by the community that is forming you, your parents, your wider family, maybe that's all a lie. Maybe it's all a colossal mistake. And mm. you at four years old have the pressure of self-knowledge. In a, I mean, and again, what, what philosophers would call a strictly imminent frame. So you don't refer to anything beyond yourself. You're the authority for who you are. And that is, I think, I think that's mythology, the idea that a four-year-old could have that and can bear that existential burden. I think that that's a recipe for profound anxiety. Um, and it, it's not something that, that, yeah, that, that we have in our history. And so the point of that op-ed piece was to, to highlight that this is, this is a redefinition of childhood and it robs childhood of the one commonality that you have across hundreds of years of childhood autobiographies, which is carefreeness, which is freedom from the responsibilities that bear down on adults. And adults do have to face really big existential questions. And um, in development, um, you know, you, you grow up... Um, when you're older, you have to face up to really huge questions about who am I, what am I? Um, but for a four-year-old, I, I just don't think that's in any way appropriate, as well as I have very big questions about the, the kind of evidence base for how you even establish that a four-year-old can know this and why that's such a strong case that you would tell children of that age that, um, that they have to go, even go against what their parents, who are their most significant caregivers, uh, mm -hmm. significant, or you know, their 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 primary caregivers, uh, um, what they might be telling these children. I think that that is uh, as, um, a really troubling thing to try and promote to children. Um, so that mm -hmm. that was the, the the context there, and, and why I made the kind of case I did. You put it out. Was there any pushback or further conversation from such a point of view? Um. Uh, so, so I actually make a point of of 
not reading the comment sections underneath my op-eds. Um, <laughs> and I, I have a few reasons for that. Part of it is my philosophy of journalism, which is that I write these opinion pieces and I take that really seriously. And I try and make them really thoughtful and I see it as a way of using... The, the, the privileges that I've been given in terms of time to get an education to a really high level and then also having the time to think and to write. So I, I take that all really seriously and put a lot of thought and work into my op-ed pieces. But once I've crafted it and handed it over to the editors and they put it out, then I see the piece as having a life of its own. And one level, it's not really my responsibility anymore. The piece mm. has a life of its own. And I think I've said my, I've said my piece. Uh, I've uh, put out my thoughts and if people don't like it and you know you always get lots of trolls uh, who will respond to anything that people sure. write in journalism that ends up on the internet so I, I i don't want to i think it's an abuse of the privilege that you have as a writer if you think that you have to respond to all of them and give yourself the last word every time that's that's not the nature of the, the <laughs> it's not facebook so, indeed yeah and and as i you know as i said at the beginning on those kinds of issues um you know, in Scottish culture, for me to address that from an explicitly Christian perspective, I'm very much automatically on the periphery because the debate, is, as I said, sure. I see it as an intra-secular debate anyway. But I think that with those kinds of pieces, it's maybe useful for Christians, again, just to see the example of someone who's trying to reason out loud in the public domain yeah. from an explicitly Christian perspective. Well, and right. I appreciate that because th that very much inspires me in the work that we do in the collaborative and even in this podcast. The uh, uh, public conversation on these issues that may or may not necessarily be from a Christian perspective, but there's a common grace truth there that can be pursued. Well, um, James, if we could go back to Bobbing just quickly, you know, his one of his seminal works is certainly his Christian worldview book. You have participated and helped translating that and bringing that into English so it's available to everybody. And somebody said that um, Bob Inc. really provides a framework for understanding and why the Christian worldview is the only solution to the discord we feel between ourselves, the Word, and God. And while we could go in a number of different directions on this, I just think that there's not a better example than the gender issues that are facing us culturally about discord because they're encroaching in every area of our life. And some listening may feel that own discord within themselves. So I was just wondering if you would talk a little bit about the significance of a Christian worldview, not only in resolving the discord, but also in how we think about the people we work with, uh, in our workspace, the people we encounter that perhaps don't hold the same views that we do. Yeah, thanks, Crossland. Um, really big questions again. I think what I have learned from Bavink and his work on Christian worldview, and you know, he uses that term very differently to how it gets used in American evangelical culture. So if oh, really? you're interested in the difference. So, I mean, I guess for... Uh, most worldview language in American evangelicalism, worldview is, is a set of beliefs. You know, you enumerate them, you can write them down, and if you agree to these 10 points, you have a Christian worldview, right? So you can acquire a Christian worldview really quickly uh, in that kind of definition. Um, like the image that I use quite often is, um, you know, in the, in the film The Matrix, when Neo learns Kung Fu, he just has to get plugged in to the program. And then seconds later, I know Kung Fu. Christian worldview in the American evangelical context is, is that kind of data dump. Yeah. You know, you and, and if I may say, movie. where would American evangelicalism be without The Matrix and Steve Jobs? Like those are the constant <laughs> reference points. But go ahead. I digress. <laughs> so, the, but the way that Bavink thinks about worldview is really different. So instead of being something that you can acquire very quickly, it's actually something that you have to build very slowly. And it's far more like, um, like, like developing a map um, that you have to do really careful research for. And then once you have that map, and it's a map of, of, of godly wisdom, um, then you use that to navigate the world very differently. 
but the map doesn't just come to you in an instant. Um, it really takes a long time to, to, to get to you. So worldview means something very different for him in the first place. But anyway, so I just, I just say that to clarify for listeners that the term is being used distinctively here, maybe mm. to what a lot of listeners will be familiar with. So I think what I've learned from Bavink in this is that modern Western culture um, in general is something that you could understand as, well, what I call it, a, I call it a cultural Christian or rephrase this, a Christian cultural heresy. Okay? So modern Western culture is, is inestimably influenced by Christianity in its most basic intuitions. Um, it's very different to, you know, if you, you go and hang out in um, mainland China or North Korea or, or, you know, some culture that hasn't been substantially influenced by Christianity for 2,000 years, people intuit the world very differently. Their basic values are, are really noticeably different. So Western culture is profoundly shaped by Christianity, and that has been the water in which we have been swimming for an extremely long time. And um, but what has happened, you know, over the last hundred years or so is that the the way that Western culture tries to hold together a lot of very Christian intuitions, you know, parts of the um, parts of a Christian worldview, we can think of it like that. The way that it tries to hold those things together has become really chaotic um, because uh, we've passed some kind of a tipping point of lack of very close access to how this all fits together through the, through the church, actually, and through Christianity. And that means that Western culture is a place where people pit things against one another that really belong together in, in harmony, but Western culture doesn't know how to hold them together in harmony. And um, so th in that sense, I call it a Christian cultural heresy. The culture is is an implosion of things that only Christianity can hold together in some kind of harmony, some kind of balance, a natural equilibrium. So um, that's, so that's the, I guess, one of the most important things that I've learned from Bavink on worldview and on making sense of the culture that I live in. And that then gives you a really interesting perspective as a Christian in that kind of cultural context in trying to make sense of, of all of the fault lines, of the, the polarities, of the, the different things that people gravitate towards the, and where they exclude the other, you know, the, the opposite, rather than thinking that maybe these two things belong together. So if you think, for example, of gender uh, and gender identity, um, to go back to Charles Taylor, okay, Charles Taylor has a great insight about secularization where the more that people are secularized, um, the, the, actually the less comfortable they become with their bodies in general, um, or the more that detached their sense of self becomes from their, their physical bodies. So Charles Taylor has a very provocative word to describe this, which is that secularized Western people live an excarnate existence. Okay? And you think of excarnate uh, as the opposite yeah. of what has happened in the incarnation. That God sure. has assumed a human nature and uh, the second person of the Trinity has assumed a human nature, uh, has become one of us, has become incarnate. So he comes to pursue us by, through incarnation and to enter our world, to become one of us. Whereas secularization actually pushes people into something like a sense of excarnation. And what Charles Taylor means by that is that, that secularized people in general are, are just born now into this way of thinking that my sense of self is somehow different from my body. I have a body, but am I my body? That's a really vexed question for right. secularized people. And then right. in this kind of cultural context that we're in now, where people are, you know, they're, they're dealing in the ingredients of a, of a recipe for a Christian worldview, but they don't have the recipe that says this is how they mix together and this is what they're going to produce in some kind of harmony. Instead, they just have the ingredients and they're throwing them at one another or saying, you know, I have this and you have that and nobody can have both of these things. So, um, uh, for example, so I guess for Bavink again, okay, to, to go back to him, one of his big insights about the Christian worldview is that life is full of things that seem like paradoxes, but you actually need to have both parts of the paradox and you shouldn't let go of either. And it's by holding on to both that you have a livable uh, approach to, to life in the world. Okay? So... And then narrow this down specifically on what troubles Western people so much about gender. So um, let's take a, a really big 
philosophical philosophy of life paradox, like, um, I seem to live in a world of cause and effect, a world that's like a big machine. Uh, that's why when I get sick, I take a specific medicine because I think, well, the world of cause and effect will mean that I know the medicine will have a predictable result. This is why I don't jump off a cliff. Um, this is why, you know, I, I make so many, so much of how I live assumes that this world is a big machine. And yet I don't right. seem to be a machine. Feels like I make free choices. It feels like I, my, I have real human agency. And that's not just an illusion. But how can I have one without giving up on the other? Okay. Um, that's just a, an, an age old philosophical problem, philosophical paradox. Sure. And lots of philosophies over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia, have come down on one option or the other and said that the truth really lies in one and not the other. So Bavink will say that Christianity says it's both. Um, you are both part of, of a world of cause and effect and you are free. Okay? And you'll find lots of Christian theologians and philosophers over the ages who explain how that works in you know, different kind of ways, but the basic idea is the same. And that's actually, I think, at the heart of why secularized Western people are so vexed about gender in relation to the body. So another way that you could express the, the question of, do I live in a, am I just a cog in a big machine or am I actually really free and free from the, this mechanical world? Another way that you could express that is through, so terms that some philosophers will use. Um, so one term is called mimesis. It's like the word to mime. So you copy something. So the world is out there and I have a mimetic relationship to it. That's how I should live. So the world is really out there and the way that I live should conform to the world out there. Uh, so mimetic. And therefore, if I have male chromosomes, then I have a mimetic approach to gender. And therefore, you know, my gender has to follow my biology. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. And another way that philosophers will talk about it is through that idea of poiesis. And this is where we get even the word poetry, uh, something that you create um, that wasn't there before. So I am in here and I am the creative free spirit, I'm the real human agent, and I will create the world out there. The world will conform to what I want to make of it. So therefore, if you come down on that side of things, then you, you end up deciding that um, because, you know, you create, the world conforms to your will, the world should, and my body therefore should conform to my will for what I decide my gender is. So you have, I think that the fault line, again, is, is a fault line through a paradox. Um, and it's just this age-old paradox about whether I conform to the world or whether the world conforms to me. Am I part of a, this bigger world or uh, am I actually a, a human agent with my own will, with my own free will? And Bavink will say that, that it's a mark of pagan thinking that you have to you know, sign up to the package deal on one side or the other. And that actually Bav Bavink will always say that Christianity and life fit together like a lock and a key. And it's Christianity that gives you the tools to say, Yes, I do belong in this big material world, and I'm part of that through the doctrine of creation. And I do have really good reason to take medicine when I'm sick and, and to place myself as part of that world. Um, but also, Bavink will say, I'm the image of God. I have a soul. Mm. I have a mind. And the way that God has made me isn't an illusion. God hasn't tricked me into thinking that I'm actually a self-conscious being mm. and that I also have agency and free will. Um, and that I also make something of the world as well as the world makes something of me. So Bavink will say you need both of those uh, and you shouldn't try and divide them. And in fact, the, the Christian intuition is to say that, that there's a distinct Christian anthropology that holds those things together. James, this is, I mean, wow, like the mimetic, the poetic, because I can imagine I'm at work. And somebody is fiercely arguing, no, gender files biology. And then somebody's fiercely arguing, no, we create all these things that's sociological. And uh, we being called to hold the two in tension, because that is the Christian story. Then I could see this is where people uh, love to throw the, oh, you're hypocrites. You will uh, use plastic surgery to get a better nose or to maybe repair a lost limb, not for, cut, for, for beauty reasons. And yet you won't use surgery in these other means. And we get caught up in these seeming conundrums, not recognizing that we're kind of called to hold both intention. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And then this opens up Christian ethics. This is a, this is a distinct yeah. thing that Christians need to do on Christianity's own terms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there, there's a whole field of, of thinking for Christians about how to do this in a distinctively Christian way. 
But to get into that in the first place, you have to resist the package deals, I think. And, and you have to have a very Christianized or a deeply Christian way of thinking in the first place. Because those, as you say, are kind of the, the pagan approach, pick one, hmm. rather than live in the tension of the mimetic and the poetic. Man. It's a lot easier to pick one, though, in one mm. sense. It is, absolutely. I mean, it's yeah. hard work mm -hmm. to hold the two. And if you don't have a well-formed Christian character or knowledge of Scripture, I mean, that's why our discipleship is so important, because it teaches us to live in the tension, to live in the gray. Well, James, my goodness, in closing, um, any other thoughts you might have as we navigate and help our workers in the workplace on these sorts of issues? Sure. I, mean, I guess I could go back to where I began when Crossland asked um, why I got into Bavink and how I got into Bavink in the first place. And that was that I was intrigued when I saw the confidence that he had in the Christian faith as Catholic uh, and the, as universal as a Christian faith, as, as the Christian faith for every age. And when I saw how persuasively he could articulate that in his own you know, modern Dutch context, um, it made me think, uh, or challenged me to, to have a lot more confidence in the Catholicity of the faith in the 21st century in, in my own very secularized Western European context. And, uh, you know, I think that for Bavink, um, I, I don't think that his theology is intended so that we'll just be mimetic and we'll just say you know, say the things that Bavink said a hundred years ago. He very much styled his theology as a, um, as a tradition to carry on, to wrestle with the big questions that will arise that he he knew he wouldn't be able to imagine, but that would come up right. in a hundred years' time. Um, but the basic confidence in the Catholicity of the faith carries on. That has to be universal. And uh, I think for Christians who are grappling with the challenge of how to lean in on the faith on its own terms, um, there's such a rich tr uh, tradition there to do so. So I would encourage listeners to uh, to lean in as, as much as they can with all their weight because there's so much more there that can bear them up. Mm -hmm. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And um, I know Crossland's very grateful for your insights. I can see her eyes and her mind just <laughs> running. <laughs> this has been great, James. It really has. I've one of my hopes and prayers for this podcast is that listeners and viewers leave with a greater holy confidence that allows us to see our own sin and mm. exercise great cat passion and love for one another. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and look up online the Whiskey Room at the Balmoral Hotel. <laughs> we are going to put a link to that in our show notes because... It matters, and I look forward to that. In fact, for doing this, James, I may even have to buy a second round. Wow, sounds good. You can have me back on the podcast anytime. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again. Conform to the world out there. Wow, Case, what a great discussion with such a brilliant mind and particularly the world's leading scholar on Herman Bavink. Well, and the world of theology, he's a big deal. Yes, he really is, and had, I think, so much to say that we can learn from. Um, the thing that struck me was this distinction he made about Christian worldview and how we define it. And in America, it tends to be sort of a checklist, and you meet these 10 points or criteria, and all of a sudden, boom, you have a Christian worldview. How like Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't see it till somebody like a Scott points it out to us. Yes. But then, you know, he tells us how Bovink saw mm -hmm. that. And Bovink sees it as something that is acquired over a long period of time and is built and nurtured, and yeah. I just love that. We need to think more about those kinds of things. Well, he said, map-making of godly wisdom. Like, yes. oh! <laughs> and so I just imagine, like, the, you know, when the um, the people went out from Europe to, dis to discover the new world, and they did map-making, and they're constantly in and out of peninsulas and river bays and such, right. and trying to write it down. And you know what? They had to come back again and do it again and again and again until it got perfect, and that map-making of godly wisdom.
Yeah, so that we can navigate life really well. And you don't get it the first trip. No, you don't. You don't. I liked how he talked about the, um, he used the term intrasecular debate. Intrasecular, Mm. meaning, you know, it's not just uh, these new ideas on gender ideology and Christians. That even beyond Christian worldview, there are various views and those will be hammered out. I I wonder if in America we don't see that as distinctly and clearly. I remember in our episode a while back with um, Andy Crouch, you had actually asked, where are the feminists? And I do know there have been a couple of voices like Martina Navratilova and others who have echoed an intra-secular perspective on such things. But and then it makes me think we might find allies in a way. Yes. I mean, we believe in principal pluralism, and how might there be non-Christians that still want to affirm uh, our view of gender, and we could find allies in public policy. Right, yeah. right. Well, as we shift now to our time of spiritual formation, as a reminder, we're doing these this year within our episodes themselves. And um, early in James' comments, he challenged us to think more in the categories, and I appreciated this, of sin, forgiveness, and grace, rather than us versus them, sin, forgiveness, and grace, which applies to all of us. And so practically, what we take away from this episode, I wonder, listener or viewer, where does your mind go when you encounter someone who is identifying opposite of their biological gender? Uh, this was my experience at Christmas with family gathered and being in very close uh, conversation with someone very different. So where does your mind go? Does it go in the direction of sin, forgiveness, grace? On the sin front, think about your own sin and temptation to judge or to belittle someone. Think about your own temptation and mine to judge or little someone and how that is so contrary to the image of God that's in each of us and the love we're called to offer. Forgiveness. Consider how you have been forgiven over a lifetime of sin. Consider how you have been forgiven and the kind of patience perhaps it takes others to be with you. And then grace, that third category. Remember, the creator of heaven and earth loves me in spite of me. So I, too, should extend love towards all that I encounter. And this can come in the smallest of ways. For instance, like eye contact, respect, graciousness, and maybe even managing my anxiety with folks who are making these choices long before I'm in their presence so that I'm not having to work through that in the moment. Sin. Forgiveness and grace, three huge and key and important Christian concepts that we want to make sure we bring to this conversation. So practice this over and over. Dwell on these things this week in your prayer time and see how it transforms your heart. Thanks so much for being with us today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Help us spread the word about nuance. Please like the episode, subscribe to our podcast, and share our link so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative and is made possible by the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Foundation. On behalf of Case Thorpe and myself, thank you for joining the conversation.